Luke 23, verses 26 through 49. Let me remind you that this is the word of our Lord. And as they led him, our Lord and Savior, away, They seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him saying, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Let's pray. Holy Father, we praise you. We worship you this morning for we have read words that are the most marvelous picture of your tremendous love for us. And Father, we will always praise you for what you accomplished through your son on Calvary. 
Father, thank you for looking upon the work of Christ as sufficient for our salvation. Thank you that he worked and accomplished that work necessary by which we are saved. Father, thank you that through the gospel, hearing the good news about the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we can respond by trusting in who he was and what he has done. And there are no other requirements placed upon us. Thank you that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, as I pray, I pray as we look at these passages this morning, that the spirit of God would do everything for us, that he would clear our minds and focus us in on the truths and the glory that we see in these passages that the Spirit of God would take my words and sanctify them and allow them to pierce our hearts with the principles that we find and then take all of our hearts and humble them and make them willing to receive and rejoice in what we find here. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your Son. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Take you oftentimes to Exodus 34, and we look at a passage that describes for us the character of God. And that's really what I want to use this morning to frame out the, the picture that we see before us. And I want to use the Word of God to do that because the Bible is the Word of God, it is written by God, and it is the special revelation of God. For those who are filled with the Spirit of God and can understand it and comprehend it as we read it and as we study it and as we cherish its pages. Now, the reason, again, that I take you to Exodus 34 is because that is the one place in, in the Bible where you find the clearest and most concise definition of the, per, of the person of God. It is a self-description. God is writing about himself. And we would do well to memorize it. And as I've often said to you, never let anyone else define God for you, nor even your own heart do not trust it, unless they or it is carefully guarded by Scripture. Because we have to turn to the Word of God to understand the person of God. The moment you go anywhere else to define God is the moment that you've began constructing your own idol. And so we look at this passage for us. Again, you're very familiar with it, I realize, and I pray that you're beginning to realize the need to memorize it. This is the moment where Moses asked to see the glory of God. And so God, in a successful attempt to reveal who he was to Moses, walks before him and says these words about himself. This is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's the God we worship. That's the God we serve. Now, if Exodus 34 is a description of the Lord, and certainly it is, there are innumerable places that we see 
not just hear the words, but we actually see the person of God and the glory of God in what he has done. For instance, we will spend some time once we get to Romans one talking about creation and creation. Unless, of course, you're a fool reveals to us in a great sense, in a general sense, but in a great sense, who God is. Paul will write this in Romans one. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. You understand that anyone living anywhere at any time can look up and see the glory of creation, the beauty, the wonder, the majesty, the wisdom, the knowledge, the creativity and understand something glorious about God. And God has designed it to be that way. And so not only do we have the words of Scripture, but we also have these pictures that we can see the glory of God in, in moments through what he has done. So here we go. I know of no better place, though, in Scripture to see or to get a picture of the character of God than what we see here in the death of the son. We've got the words in Exodus 34, 6, but we've got the painting, if you will, in the Gospels of the character of God. Now, when I read this, I know there are a great many things to see and points to make from what we've read through our passages this morning. But I'm just going to simply leave those for you. There's the overwhelming depravity of man modeled by the religious leaders. We're aghast at the things that they say to God. But at the same time, there's this model, this simple faith, this wonderful, perfect, simple faith that's modeled for us by a criminal that's condemned to die. You've got a powerful theological truth in the curtain being torn. And I started to spend all my time with that. You've got ironic words from religious leaders that were said meant to mock the Lord. But in actuality, they are words of truth that honor the Lord. Certainly, the, certainly God is pleased with him. Certainly he is the chosen one. And certainly God does raise him like they were mocking the Lord. And then we have a man whose bold faith certainly cost him a great deal. We will probably talk about him some next week if we have time. But I want us just to focus our attention on seeing the character of God in the crucifixion of the son this morning. I want us to see more and know more of God. So I'll start with some of these phrases and we'll walk through them as we have time. Lord willing, we'll have we'll be able to finish. But I want us to key on this first phrase here, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And let me start with the subject of faithfulness, the faithfulness of God. Now, I do realize if we set about the task to talk about the faithfulness of God and try and exhaust that subject, we can't. Not only do we have endless stories of a written record of the faithfulness of God, we could go from every single individual about the personal experiences of the faithfulness of God. It would take a thousand lifetimes for us to begin to put a dent in the faithfulness of God in describing how faithful he was. But this past week during Dwight's funeral, I thought Stephen Barber did a tremendous job reminding the family about the faithfulness of God, even in death. And so I wanted to share with you some of those things this morning to remind you about that same faithfulness. So keep your finger there. Mark something in Luke 23, if you will. And go with me to the right to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. 
Go all the way to the end of Paul's writings. You'll come to the book of Hebrews and then go with me to Hebrews chapter 11. A few trails I want to take this morning. This is one of them. Hebrews chapter 11, notice for me verse 8, and let's look at some of these Old Testament heroes and their faith in God's faithfulness, okay? Verse 8, subject is Abraham. The writer of Hebrews says this, By faith, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of, notice, promise. And he lived there as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with his son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob. Fellow heirs of the same, notice the word, same promise. For Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, if you're taking notes, jot down Genesis 12 and go back and read that sometime this week. That's the call of Abraham. Abraham worshiping false gods and idols. And in the midst of that, God calls Abraham to himself. And this is what God says. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And so by faith, Abraham takes the promise of God and he packs his bags and he goes forth. And we marvel at the faith of Abraham, but you need to understand, you need to marvel at the God who made the promise. Because we say much about faith, but I'm afraid we don't really understand how simple it is. Faith is nothing more than trusting in God's promise. That's it. Abraham gets credit for the faith, but it's God who made the promise and it's God who makes good on that promise. All throughout Abraham's life and Isaac's life and Jacob's life. They're simply trusting in the promises of God. That is all faith is. Move on down to verse 11 and we see his wife, Sarah. And we see the promise given to her and the faith or the trust in which she responded. Hebrews 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age. Since she considered God faithful who had, notice the word, promised Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, Abraham a hundred, right? Were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Sarah had a child in her 90s, Isaac, and he was known as the son of promise. Because God had promised them in their late age that you will have a son. In fact, it's written down in Genesis 17... God says to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I'll bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. And then a few chapters later in Genesis 21, we hear the fulfillment of the promise. The Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And you get a picture of who God is. What he says, he does. And faith is simply that which is given to you that reaches out toward God in trust and takes hold of it. We take hold of the promises of God 
That is faith. But I think my favorite one of all the hall of faith in the Old Testament saints that we read about in Hebrews 11 is down in verse 22. Notice with me just one more illustration, but then I want to follow through with this promise a little bit longer than the rest. Notice Hebrews eleven twenty two. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. This strikes me as the most amazing sort of faith that you can find in the Old Testament. If you remember the story, Jacob had 12 sons and there was a tremendous famine in the land. And God sent them down to Egypt to survive the famine. And the way that he did that is the most remarkable display of the sovereignty of God you'll ever see. But Joseph goes from slave to ruler over all of Egypt. But the family understands that they're not in their land. It is not the land of promise. And Joseph, without ever knowing that his people would become slaves, without ever knowing how long his people would be there, Joseph knew that there would be a time that God would deliver them and take them out. And it would not be in his lifetime. He would die long before Moses showed up in the deliverance of God. Yet Joseph had enough faith, understanding that who God was and the fact that if he makes a promise, you can bank the rest of eternity on it. He makes this statement. When I die and you bury me, you make it so that you can dig up my bones and take it with you because I am not where I'm supposed to be. I will rest in the promises of God alone. And so we go through these passages. Genesis 50. Here's the actual words. Joseph says to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you. And he had no idea that it would be 400 years later. He had no idea it would be Moses. But yet he says, bring, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Now, a little over 400 years later. God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. And Moses, who never met, who never met Joseph, took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones with you from here. So they begin this journey 40 years plus with a bag of bones waiting to get back to the land that God had promised them to live in. And so when we get to Joshua, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, which is in the promised land, in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver. And it became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. God made a promise. And this family trusted in that promise, and the Bible calls that faith. And that's the faith that we'll talk about in the book of Romans. Now, as far as funerals go, as Christians, we, we go to funerals by faith. We pray to God during funerals by faith. We sing worship songs to God, and we do so by faith. We preach the gospel at funerals, and we do so by faith because we know, according to the promises of God, that body will be raised again. And therefore, everything that we do, we do it by faith, trusting that God is good on his promises. And we will 
see our loved ones again. Amen? That's what Christians do. But let me move you beyond just trusting God in death. Guys, we need to begin to trust God even more in life, right? So back to our thoughts in Luke 23. If you want to move back there, now you can. When we see in Luke 23 the death of Christ, we see the faithfulness of God and recall the promises of God to deliver His people from sin and from Satan and from death. And you know, if Jesus had never said it the three times that He says it in the Gospel of Luke, telling the disciples that He must go up to Jerusalem, be betrayed, handed over, crucified, and raised again, if we understand the character of God, Jesus doesn't have to say those things. If we understand that God is perfect and just, and to break His law will bring about death, but also understand that God is merciful and loving... And that He will restore us and reconcile us to Himself. And the only way to reconcile us is through death. We should have understood that the only one sufficient to die in our place would be God Himself. And we look at the cross and go, of course He died. He had to die. Because He is God and we understand the character of God. Now about this deliverance from sin... Got a little ahead of myself, but we should have always known the Lord talks about sin and death all throughout Scripture. But He also promises us all throughout Scripture that He will deliver us. The promises begin in Genesis 3 at the fall. Adam and Eve fall and God makes a promise. This is what He says in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He says, He Your offspring, Eve, will crush the head of the serpent, but you shall bruise his heel. And so immediately we understand that this life is going to be difficult. There's going to be enmity with our enemy, and yet God will deliver us. Genesis 12, the Lord reiterates that promise of deliverance. He tells Abraham when he calls him, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we understand Right? Two things immediately. We understand that the offspring of Eve will somehow deliver us. And we understand somehow that the offspring of Abraham and Sarah will deliver us. And then when you pick up the Gospels, you begin to read, Oh, why was it that Matthew starts his genealogy of Jesus with Abraham? Because Matthew remembers the promise in Genesis 12. Why does Luke start the genealogy of Jesus and carry it all the way back to Adam? Because he remembers the promise in Genesis 3 that God would somehow crush the head of the serpent. And so these New Testament writers are nothing, doing nothing more than writing by faith, understanding the promises of God. But as I said, there's promises all over the place. Isaiah 53, listen to what our Lord says. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon His chastisement has brought us peace and with His wounds we are healed. And we knew somehow that God was going to save us. One of my favorite New Testament promises is in Matthew 1. The angel comes to Joseph to convince him not to divorce Mary privately and to tell him that the baby within Mary was conceived of the Holy Spirit And then he says this to Joseph. He says, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Man, that's a future indicative. It's a statement of fact. It's not a question. It's not a hope so. It's not a he's planning to. No, the angel says he will save his people from their sins. And so we understand that it is the son of God and it is the faithfulness of God by which we are saved. So let me ask you a question. How faithful is God? How far will God go to be true to his character and remain faithful? There's no boundary. There is no limitation for God. He goes entirely all the way to the death of his son. So far, in fact, that he would devise a plan to deliver us by having his only son who was with God and was God take on the flesh of man, be ridiculed, despised, forsaken, beaten, bruised, then crucified on a cross in order to be faithful to his promise. Listen, Beloved, understand the promises of God. There is no possible way God can ever back up one inch on his promises. He killed his son to be faithful to his promise to his people. He is unwaveringly immovable in regard to his promises. Our lives rest securely on the promises of God. There is no stronger foundation. There is no more secure place to stand. And listen to the promise that God has given us. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you know how true that is? Do you know? That if heaven and hell were to align themselves against that promise, they couldn't move it from its foundations. Do you realize your faith in Christ has raised you from the dead? Do you realize your faith in his faithfulness has secured your soul for all eternity in the presence of God? And there's nothing, not even your untimely death can change that. That's how faithful our God is. Now, not only do we see the faithfulness of God in these passages, but we also see the faithfulness of the Son who is God. You don't have to turn back there, but I do want to remind you of a few passages. Jesus says this, and it's one of my favorite places in Hebrews 10, verse 5 through 7. It says this, When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so we move from the faithfulness of God to the faithfulness of the son. And before the son ever comes in the flesh, He says to the father, behold, I come to do your will. And so throughout the life of Christ, we see these repeating passages that speak back to this. In John 6, Jesus says to the religious leaders, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Luke 22, Jesus prays from the garden. He says, Father, if you're willing to remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will but your will be done. And then we read this morning, Luke 23, verse 46, Jesus' very last words go back 
to the words that he spoke before he came. Jesus calling out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. From beginning to end, the son of God was faithful. Now, here's what's so wonderful about that. The son was obedient and faithful to the father until death. Right. And it's by his faithfulness that you and I are counted faithful. And I found this amazing and I got swept up in this as I'd sat there and thought about this because we talk about propitiation, right? This word at Calvary, our sins were imputed to Christ or they were given over by the grace of God. And he died for our sins that we had done. But in the same sense, his righteousness is imputed to us. And so we stand before God as those who are holy and righteous in his sight. But in a great sense, the fullness of Christ was imputed to us. And so not only we're we counted righteous, we're counted faithful. Now, I have a problem in my mind understanding this, because when God looks at me and considers me righteous, I'm going to be just going. Maybe I'll understand it by then, but by the grace of God, he looks at the righteousness of the son and considers me equally righteous. In the same sense, God will look at us who are in Christ and consider us faithful from beginning to end. And surely you're familiar with your life enough to know that you have not been faithful to the Lord from beginning to end. In fact, your life may be a record of this continual cycle of faithfulness, unfaithfulness, faithfulness, unfaithfulness until you want to just rent your shirt and go, God, how long? Am I going to be unfaithful to you? I know better. And yet somehow through the glories of Christ, we'll stand before God and he will look upon us as if we had been faithful from beginning to end. You see, we celebrate the faithfulness of God and we likewise we celebrate the faithfulness of the son because it has become our own. Now I'll speed up from here a little bit. Back to Exodus 34. This God is abounding in steadfast love, not just faithfulness, but he's steadfast love. NASB uses the word loving kindness. We've often used the word chesed to describe it. One commentator describes it as this, the kindness of his love. So look, when you read Exodus 34, you read these words that this God is abounding, abounding in love. And then you look at Calvary. And you see the love. You don't just hear it. You see it. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see what I'm talking about? At Calvary, we see the character of God. Paul writes this in Romans 5. Listen to this. God demonstrates. God demonstrates. His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we see the cross, when we see our Savior die, we comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. We read about it and then we see it at Calvary and we understand it even more. Still a few words from the Apostle Paul. Oh, the depths of the riches of the love of God. Its greatness is unfathomable, 
its magnitude immeasurable, but yet we can see it and know it. Look at what the centurion says in Luke 23, verse 47. Look at verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Now, if we can borrow a few of those words, when we see what's happened at Calvary, we can say, certainly this God has loved us because he has given his son for us. God is exceedingly without measure faithful and is exceedingly beyond measure loving. There's another passage in here that we have to deal with. The Lord, he says to Moses, the Lord of God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. What does it say? He will by no means clear the guilty. Not on your life. He will not clear the guilty. They will not go unpunished, the NASB says. So in Exodus 34, we hear the justice of God. We hear the justice. He will not be moved away from right and wrong. He will not be moved away from his just God, who he is. But when you look at Calvary, you see the picture of his justice. And you see the picture of his wrath because his son died. He didn't save us by sweeping justice under the rug. He saved us by putting his son to death in our place. God is faithful. God is loving and God is just. Just as he is committed to his love, so he is equally committed to his justice. And the Lord has always talked about justice from beginning of the Bible to the end. Genesis 3, this is what the Lord commanded Adam saying, you can eat from any tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And die they did. By the time you get to Genesis 5, it is a record of death. Go read it. God is a God of justice. And he says, you rebel against me, you will die. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9, according to the law, all things are cleansed with blood, the writer says. And then he says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. According to the character of God, the only way that sin is atoned for is through death. That is it. There is nothing to pay. There's nothing you can do. There's no work to accomplish. There is no balance in heaven that which you rebel against God and you respond in faith to God. And if you get that balance leveled right, you're accepted by God. There is nothing of that. One rebellion against God breaks the scales. And the only way to reconcile your relationship to God is through death. That is it. That is who the character of God is. And so when we look at Calvary, we see this justice. And it was by no means a simple death for the son. Not only was it a picture of the sinfulness of man, but it was also a demonstration of the wrath of God on Calvary. We don't just see love. We also see justice. Listen to some, how some of the Old Testament, listen to how Isaiah describes Calvary. 
Isaiah says in 52, 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. They beat him beyond recognition. Isaiah 53, 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. 53.8 says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. 53.10 says, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. All those are words of justice. All those are words of wrath because of who God is. Matthew describes it this way. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the praetorium. They gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They stuck a reed in his right hand and they knelt down before him, mocking him, saying, Hail, O king of the Jews. They spat on him. They took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own garments and led him away to crucify him naked before the crowds. And Isaiah adds, and they pulled out his beard. Now, out of all of those things and understanding the justice and the wrath of God against sin, the worst part of it doesn't come until verse 46 when Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did God forsake him? Because God is just. And it's God's response to sin and rebellion. Listen, Christ died. And it was the Father who orchestrated and designed his death because God is just and he will not move off of that. As he is a God of indescribable love, he is also a God of unquenchable wrath. Listen to how Nahum describes the wrath of God. Nahum chapter one, the prophet says this about God. The Lord is jealous and an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storms and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and they dry up. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth dry heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Writer of Hebrews writes this. He takes all of that. And he simply says this. Our God is a consuming fire. Do you understand when we look at Calvary, you see that wrath, except there's one who's standing in your place that's swallowing it whole? Do you realize that because of what Jesus has done and your faith in his faithfulness to do it, all of that you will never experience or know in any measure whatsoever. Therefore, there is now no condemnation whatsoever. For those of you who are in Christ, but if you are not in Christ, all of that is yours. You're just waiting for the experience of the wrath of God. It's absolutely indescribable. You know, so many people struggle with the idea of hell. How could a loving God send people to hell? Or they struggle with the idea that hell is eternal torment. Let me ask you the question. How could you think any differently than the reality of hell 
in the fact that hell is eternal. How could you ever think that? Not only does the scriptures teach us about the reality of hell and its eternal nature, but if God is willing to pour out his wrath on his son for the sins of those who believe, what do you think he will do to those who refuse him? Why would hell not be eternal and real? The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 10, 28. Listen to his words. We're, we're winding down. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him, God, who has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, even on the way to Calvary, Jesus points to this judgment. If you're in Luke, look at 23, verse 27. Verse 27 says, There followed him a great multitude of the people of women and were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus says, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And they will begin to say, The mountain to the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. And then he says this most peculiar passage, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, all that is a short-term metaphor for the fall of Jerusalem, but it's a long-term illustration of what will happen in the judgment of God. And when you get to this last verse in verse 34, uh, what do they do when they, if the wood is green and what will happen when it's dry? It's a way that we say this, oh, if you think it's bad now, <laughs> you got no idea. That's what Jesus is saying. Oh, you think what you're going to watch today is bad? Listen, you've got no idea of how bad it's going to be for those of you who refuse me. One more characteristic about God, and I wanted to return to the mercy of God. God describes himself in this way, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Our God is a God of great mercy. Just from this morning, he is a God of great faithfulness, great love, great justice, great wrath, but also great mercy. Look at verse 34. Mercy that we cannot even begin to describe. Jesus says to those who are crucifying him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And as he's praying, they've stripped him naked and they're dividing up his clothes. And you look, you look at this and you go, what kind of God is this? And the only conclusion you can come to is this is a God that has mercy beyond my ability to understand. He is unquestionably merciful and gracious. A lot of people wonder about why these words are in here, but we don't have to wonder about that at all. Psalms 109 says this, In return for my love they accuse me, but I will give myself to prayer. You know why Jesus prays this? Because the Father said he would. Look down, or you don't have to turn back rather, but if you remember, it's exactly what Jesus had told us to do. Verse 27, but I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Why in the world would the Lord ask us to pray for those who abuse us? Because the son did from Calvary. Why did the son do that from Calvary? Because the father said he would. 
And so there's this line of faithfulness that we need to pay attention to. But look at the mercy of God in one last place. Look at verse 39. Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, which means absolutely, absolutely. I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, there's a lot to talk about here. We could talk about faith alone. I mean, where's the good works of this man? Where's the religious observance of this criminal? Where, where, where is his baptism at? And yet, what does Christ say? Today you will be with me in paradise. And we begin to understand what faith alone means. But we also understand what saving faith is. There's repentance here. What does he say? Hey, I deserve every bit of what's going on right here, right now, as I'm hanging on the cross. I deserve my death. I have been a wicked man. But then this one next to me, he has not. He is innocent. See, he understood sin and he understood that the payment of sin is death. But he also understood the innocence of Christ. And he obviously, by the grace of God, understood the person of Christ because he tells him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Look at this confidence that we have. Look what he says in verse 42 very quickly. He said to Jesus, remember me when? Look at verse 43. Truly, I say to you today. Man, that should give you all the confidence in the world. He was trying to look down the road and somehow Jesus was going to fix this. And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. At the moment of death, it is fixed. You see, at the moment of death, it is today. And you stand in the presence of the Lord. That drew great encouragement for me in preaching Dwight's funeral this week because I knew when his heart stopped and when his eyes closed and when he drew his last breath, he opened his eyes in the presence of his king. And he was more alive than he had ever been in 46 years here. And he will enjoy life like you and I have not known yet because we have the promises of God, you see. So we have a God that is merciful beyond compare. We have a God that is faithful. We have a God that is loving. And please don't forget, we have a God who is just. So when we look at Exodus 34, we see or we read about the character of God. And there's so many places throughout Scripture that we can see the character. But if you really want to understand the character of God, you have to look at Calvary. You know, we serve an amazing God from beginning to end. And I beg you, I implore you to trust in everything that he said. Not only in doing so will you be saved, but you will experience a life here that you've never known. An abundant life in Christ. And then one day. We'll put you in the ground and will do it by faith, knowing that he will raise you again from the dead. Let's pray.